If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. On a cold February morning in 2014, a determined Anuk student at St. Mary's University who was writing her thesis on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls set out to collect rent money from her new tenants. Little did she know, her own story was about to take a dark turn. This is the case of Loretta Saunders, and you're listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime. I'm your host, Caitlin, and with me, as always, is your other host, Graham. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode. If you're new, welcome, and don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast platform of choice. If you have a case suggestion for us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. We do prioritize cases that come to us from family members or close contacts of a case, but welcome suggestions from all of our listeners. Today's case came to us from a listener by the name of Dominic, so thank you, Dominic, for bringing this case to our attention. With that, let's go ahead and get right into this week's episode. So in this episode, we're going to be covering the murder of Loretta Saunders, an Anuk woman who was living in Halifax, Nova Scotia at the time of her murder. Loretta's homicide case is one of two cases that inspired the hashtag AmINext campaign. This campaign was started by Loretta's cousin, Holly Jarrett. 
the MI Next campaign was a major catalyst to finally getting the Harper government to be more open to doing an internal investigation into the mishandling of MMIWG cases. Up until this point, Harper had refused to open an inquiry, stating, I think we should not view this, referring to the murder of Tina Fontaine, as a sociological phenomenon. Now, Tina Fontaine's murder was the other case that inspired the hashtag MINext campaign. Now, we absolutely want to cover Tina's case in the near future, so we won't get into too much detail here. Tina Fontaine was a 15-year-old Indigenous girl from the Sakim First Nation in Manitoba. Her murder gained widespread attention and highlighted the issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Tina Fontaine went missing in August of 2014, and her body was found in Winnipeg's Red River on August 17, 2014. She had been reported missing by Child and Family Services, but she was still in contact with her family before she went missing. Her death reignited discussions about the high rates of violence, exploitation, and discrimination faced by Indigenous women and girls in Canada. Raymond Cormier, a man with a history of criminal behavior, was charged with second-degree murder in connection with Tina Fontaine's death. During the trial, it was revealed that Tina had struggled with a difficult life, including the loss of her father, issues with the child welfare system, and a transient lifestyle. The trial, however, ended with Cormier being acquitted in February of 2018. This verdict led to public outrage and renewed calls for justice for Indigenous victims of violence. It wasn't until 2015 when Trudeau's government was initially elected that the announcement was made that the MMIWG inquiry would finally go forward. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and court documents. As an additional content warning, this episode deals with the murder of a young Indigenous woman, references to mental health and substance misuse, as well as child and animal abuse. So let's get to know Loretta Saunders. Loretta came into the world on August 25th, 1987 to parents Miriam Terriak and Clayton Saunders. She was born in the Happy Valley Goose Bay region of Newfoundland and Labrador. This is a remote town in a beautiful part of this country. Goose Bay originated in the Second World War as a military airbase and played a strategic role in ferrying aircraft to and from Europe and North America. Once the war ended, a community of military and civilians alike formed around the military base and became known as Happy Valley due to the positive experiences of the residents there. In 1973, Goose Bay and Happy Valley amalgamated and became incorporated as the town of Happy Valley Goose Bay. Today, Happy Valley Goose Bay is a vibrant community with a mix of military, civilian, and indigenous populations. Loretta was the fifth child in a blended family. While Miriam had two children from a previous relationship, Loretta was Clayton's first daughter. The household was a busy one. Miriam and Clayton consistently welcomed those facing hardships into their home. Miriam, of Inuk heritage, and Clayton, of mixed Inuk and European descent, extended a particularly warm welcome to individuals in need from the Indigenous community. Throughout the years, they provided a home for numerous foster kids, accommodating them on bunk beds or a couch. When asked about what their childhoods were like, Miriam recalls summers that were full of trips to the beach where the family would pack into a van and sing hymns on their way to the coast. The family didn't have TV in those days, and the kids spent much of their time outdoors. Miriam also reminisced about the children catching frogs on summer evenings, and that Loretta would be a little squeamish when it came to actually touching the frogs. 
In an article in McLean's magazine, Miriam said, She honestly believed she was a princess. She loved dolls, and she loved the mirror. Loretta loved playing house or school with her older sister, Audrey, and had big dreams of becoming a detective or a lawyer. Those who knew Loretta knew that she was going to do great things with her life. When speaking to McLean's, Loretta's older brother, Edmund, said she was the one who was going somewhere. When Loretta entered her early teen years and the ninth grade, things began to decline at school. She was complaining of difficulties at school, and then there was an alleged incident where she said she was sexually assaulted by a male classmate. According to the article in McLean's magazine from March 2014, the male classmate attempted to grab Loretta's breast, and in response to this, Loretta punched him, which resulted in her getting into trouble. Not long after this incident, Loretta dropped out of school. At just 15 years old, Loretta left home and went to live in Montreal on her own. While there isn't a ton of information about this period of her life, we do know that Loretta ended up on the streets of Montreal and in the grips of addiction. Luckily, Loretta was able to get herself out of Montreal and back home after a few years and was determined to get her life back on track. Upon her return to Newfoundland, Loretta moved to Hopedale, where she worked at a bar while finishing her high school degree. It was in 2010 when Loretta made the big move to the city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, where she had been accepted to St. Mary's University. Loretta was a criminology student and was writing her thesis on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. She was incredibly passionate about her studies, and her mother Miriam notes that Loretta's curiosity about her Native heritage had always been present, but the curiosity intensified during her undergraduate studies. Loretta developed an interest in traditional healing, smudging ceremonies, and sweat lodges. As she pursued graduate studies, she chose to focus on the issue of MMIWG. This became a significant subject of discussion between Loretta and her mother Miriam in their daily phone calls. Sometime while she was living in Halifax, Loretta met a man by the name of Yalchin, and the two began a long-term relationship. By February of 2014, the two had been together for two and a half years. However, it was in late December of 2013 when Loretta began feeling unwell, so unwell that she had to miss class. It would turn out that Loretta was pregnant and experiencing morning sickness. Not long after she found out she was pregnant, she got some unfortunate news. The funding for her graduate research project had been cut. Now, this made finances pretty tight for Loretta, so as a result, a decision was made to sublet her Halifax apartment that she had been sharing with her sister. At this time, Loretta had been spending nearly all of her time at her boyfriend's place, and Loretta's sister, Delilah, who also later in life went by DM, was moving to the West Coast. So the two no longer needed to live at the residence, and Loretta figured she could make a little money off of the property. Loretta found a couple to sublet the apartment via the classified website Kijiji, and the couple moved into the unit in January of 2014. Loretta's apartment was located at 41 Cowie Hill Road, and the apartment building was called Terrace View. Unfortunately, the problems began immediately with Loretta's new renters. Blake Leggett and Victoria Henneberry were the couple who moved into Loretta's apartment in January 2014. Victoria was 28 years old at the time, while Blake was 25. While not much is known about the couple's relationship, it is clear that they were a tumultuous and toxic pair. Blake, by his own admission, 
had a difficult childhood and spent most of his formative years being raised without a father. When male figures were present in his life, he says that they physically and mentally abused him. Here's a journal entry Blake did detailing his early life. My name is Blake William David Leggett. I was born on April 1st, 1988 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. From the time I was born until the age of six, I was fatherless. I was in a foster home, had multiple different men in my life that were involved with my mother that came and went without a thought of me. One man in particular fathered my stepbrother and was the first man to abuse me. I believe I was four. There was a room in the house that I was not allowed in. Well, being curious and wanting something one night, I opened the door just to have it slammed in my face. Later that night is when he used a rolled-up TV guide wrapped in electrical tape to beat my back black and blue. Coincidentally enough, that was the same thing he used to beat our dog. He cheated on my mom with my mother's best friend, which ended the relationship. The next man is who fathered my stepsister, who other than being a drunk, no bad memories that I can recall. At the age of six, I was told to speak to a man on the phone that was my real father. By the age of seven, he moved my mother, her boyfriend, sister, and brother and I all to Calgary, Alberta. He paid for the whole trip, including the rent, and filled the cupboards with groceries. Soon after, within weeks, I moved in with my father, and the mental abuse started. He convinced me my mother was no good, that she didn't teach me how to shower or bathe properly, nor did she teach me how to wipe my ass. He had me at the age of seven, had me calling her a bitch and telling her to fuck off, and I never wanted to speak to her again. Then, once he somehow had custody over me, which till this day I have never heard the truth about, or so I think, the controlling, abusive, physical punishment started. Belts, fists, fireplace poker sticks, I had it all. My school pictures were taken with makeup on to hide my black eyes. In the hospital, due to a soft spot on my head due to him picking me up and slamming me into the ground, another hospital moment was from being punched in the stomach until I puked up fluids. I needed to go to the hospital for IV fluid because I was so dehydrated. When I was 12, I moved back with my mom. At 14, I moved back with dad because it wasn't working with her. I was damaged and angry by that point. So I moved to Halifax and met my new stepmom at the Christmas of 2003. I found out my father was affiliated with the Hells Angels. This is also the time when I started smoking marijuana. So Blake and Victoria move into Loretta's apartment, and the trouble started right away when the couple failed to pay Loretta any rent money. On the morning of February 13th, 2014, Loretta got up and told her boyfriend Yalchin that she was going to the Cowie Hill apartment to try and get the rent money, which was a total of $430 from Blake and Victoria. So to be clear, they hadn't paid her anything for January, they moved in mid-month, and they still hadn't paid her for February, and it was near the halfway point of that month at this point. Yalchin figured she wouldn't be long and went back to sleep. This would be the last time he would see his girlfriend alive. Loretta never returned from her trip to the apartment on February 13th, but text messages were being sent from her phone to her boyfriend through the night and into the next day. These text messages were strange in Yalchin's opinion. Loretta wouldn't tell him where she was, and she was saying things like, I wanted to see some friends and take my mind off of shit. And I'm so stressed out, I can't even remember my mom's maiden name. 
Loretta was texting Yalchin saying that she had locked herself out of her online banking and needed to find some money. Immediately, Yalchin knew that there was something wrong. Loretta Saunders was officially reported missing by her family on February 17, 2014. Her car, a blue Toyota Celica, was also missing. Luckily, a big break came in this case, and it wouldn't take long for law enforcement to uncover what had happened. On Tuesday, February 18th, her car was located over 2,000 miles away outside of a residence in Harrow, Ontario. Also located at the residence were Loretta's new renters, Blake Leggett and Victoria Hanneberry. They were both arrested on charges of being in possession of a stolen vehicle and taken into custody. Both Blake and Victoria were already wanted on outstanding warrants. Blake was wanted for failure to appear in a Calgary court, while Victoria had a warrant related to an incident of uttering threats in Halifax from January of 2011, which was unrelated to Loretta Saunders. Finally, on February 26, 2014, at 4.30 p.m., a discovery was made in the neighboring province of New Brunswick. In a wooded area just off the Trans-Canada Highway near the town of Salisbury, Loretta's frozen body was located inside a large black hockey bag. After removing snow from the hockey bag at the St. John Morgue, a Greyhound baggage tag was made visible. The tag, dated January 16, 2014, indicated a trip destined to Halifax and bore the name Victoria Hanneberry. Now, after Loretta's body was taken out of the hockey bag, it was apparent that her head was entirely wrapped tightly in plastic cling wrap. This was causing flattening and distortion of Loretta's facial features, especially in the nose and mouth area. The very next day, on February 27, 2014, Blake Leggett and Victoria Henneberry were charged with the first-degree murder of Loretta Saunders. Fast forward to August 1st of 2014 when a decision on committal was held. For those like me who aren't familiar with what a decision on committal is, a decision on committal typically refers to a legal ruling or judgment made by a court following a preliminary or committal hearing. In the legal process, a committal hearing is conducted to determine whether there is enough evidence for a case to proceed to trial. The decision on committal is the court's determination of whether the evidence presented is sufficient to warrant a trial for the accused. Blake and Victoria were jointly charged with the first-degree murder of Loretta Saunders, but the two parties were telling different stories and perhaps unsurprisingly blaming the other. The judge started out by saying that from the evidence they had, they knew a committal would be justified in at least second-degree murder when it came to Blake and when it came to Victoria, they figured they could get her on accessory after the fact. What they were trying to determine was whether or not they could in any likelihood get a guilty verdict on a first-degree murder charge against either or both of the accused. First, the judge goes through the broad evidence they have against Blake, starting with when Loretta initially went missing on February 13, 2014. In February 2014, Loretta was renting apartment 1003 at 41 Cowie Hill Road. She had been a tenant there for at least two years and was there when Ms. Whalen, the superintendent for the building, moved in. Ms. Saunders paid her rent directly to Ms. Whalen as she was no longer permitted to do so by the way of pre-authorized debit and we, we were not sure why. That was just part of the, the court documents that we read. Loretta was spending most of her time in February of 2014 at the apartment of her boyfriend, Yalchin. 
Loretta had put an ad on Kijiji and Blake and Victoria responded and then moved into the Cowie Hill apartment in mid-January 2014. On the morning of February 13th, Loretta was with Yelchin at his apartment and he testified that around 9 or 10 a.m., Loretta left with his only set of keys to go and check on the Cowie Hill apartment. Yalchin did not expect that she would be gone long and went back to sleep. It was Yalchin's evidence that Loretta drove a blue Toyota Celica and would have used it to get to the Cowie Hill apartment residence on that day. Now the judge brings in the evidence of the CCTV footage that was located from the apartment's lobby cameras. The building manager, Ms. Whalen, testified that she knew Loretta. She also said that she had met Blake and Victoria when they had inquired about getting a key to the mailbox. She also stated that she was unaware that the couple had moved into Loretta's apartment. When Ms. Whalen watched the security footage from the CCTV cameras in the lobby that were pointed towards the elevators, she said she recognized Loretta in the footage. She said she was able to identify Loretta due to Loretta having a distinct walk and a tendency to flip her hair with her hands. So the clip, uh, the CCTV footage that shows Loretta walking into the building, I will kind of give you an overview of what it shows. I will post the security footage on our social media as well so you can look at it for yourself. But the security footage shows Loretta entering the lobby of the building alone and walking immediately over to the elevator where she presses the button and turns around while flicking her hair out of her jacket with both hands. She then walks around in a bit of a circle waiting for the elevator that opens behind her. She gets into the elevator and is now out of view of the camera and the door closes. This is the last time Loretta is seen alive. The building manager testified that she watched all of the security footage from that camera on February 13th and said that she never saw Loretta again. On the same camera, Blake and Victoria were also observed. They were wearing the same jackets that they were wearing when they were arrested in Harrow, Ontario, when police discovered them in possession of Loretta's vehicle. The security footage shows Blake and Victoria coming and going from the building repeatedly. The first clip shows them leaving the building together while Victoria is holding a box under her arm, and this box seems to be a computer box, so a box that um, a laptop would come in. They return to the building empty-handed, cross the lobby, and get back into the elevator. In the next clip, Blake is seen holding a very large black hockey bag. He emerges from the elevator holding the bag with both hands and immediately places the bag down on the ground as he enters the lobby. He does this as the bag is so heavy that he needs to readjust his grip to continue carrying it. Once he's established a better hold of the bag, he exits the building carrying it outside. Upon his return back to the lobby, Blake is carrying a small white bag. The building manager testified that the direction Blake went in in this clip is towards the building's garbage room. When he returns to the elevator, Blake is no longer carrying the small white bag. The next clip shows the couple carrying luggage out of the elevator and out through the front door, and this luggage very closely resembles the luggage that was found in their possession when they were arrested in Ontario. The final recorded image from the camera at 41 Cowie Hill Road shows Blake and Victoria exiting the elevator while carrying what appears to be personal belongings. They depart together through the main door, and afterward, Ms. Whalen reviewed the remaining footage from that lobby security camera on February 13th and observed that they did not return again. Now, whenever Blake and Victoria exited through the front door of 41 Cowie Hill Road, they consistently turned right. 
Ms. Whalen testified that this direction led towards the upper parking lot of the building where Loretta Saunders' designated parking spot was located. But the 41 Cowie Hill Road security footage was not the only CCTV footage that these two left for investigators to follow. Blake and Victoria were also observed at a nearby Tim Hortons drive-thru inside Loretta's blue Toyota Celica. After their Timmy stop, Blake and Victoria go to an electronics store called The Source, where they are observed holding a box that looks exactly like the computer box they were seen leaving the apartment with. The two return an HP laptop, citing that it, quote, didn't have enough power, and left with a debit refund of $462.40. So the judge now moves on to the discovery of Loretta's car and her body. So on February 18, 2014, Ontario Provincial Police located Loretta's blue Toyota Celica outside a residence. This was later revealed to be the residence of a friend of the couple. Now this residence, of course, was in Harrow, Ontario. Inside the residence, police found Blake and Victoria, who were also in possession of Loretta's debit card, as well as other pieces of identification belonging to Loretta. The two were arrested for being in possession of a stolen vehicle and brought back to Nova Scotia for questioning in regards to the disappearance of Loretta Saunders. On February 26, 2014, Victoria gave a statement under caution to police. It was later the same day that Victoria helped lead police to where Loretta's frozen body was located. So let's go ahead and get into the forensic evidence that was discovered on Loretta's remains. Forensic investigators were able to identify that Loretta's head was wrapped in 11 layers of cling wrap, and found on one of these layers was a fingerprint that matched Blake Leggett's ring finger. In examining Ms. Saunders' body, forensic investigators discovered another important piece of evidence, a broken twig lodged into her hair. In her apartment on Cowie Hill Road, investigators found broken twigs from a decorative arrangement in the dining room. They were able to connect a piece of the broken twig from the dining room to the one that was found in Loretta's hair, and it fit perfectly together. The judge continued going over the evidence found inside the apartment. This included an empty Glad cling wrap box, which was located on the counter in the kitchen. Also recovered were torn plastic Sobeys bags that were located in the living room. These plastic bags had been torn in two, deliberately. That was the end of the evidence that was submitted at the decision on committal hearing. The judge ruled that all of the evidence should be admissible against both of them. But he still had to decide on whether the couple would face first-degree murder charges or second-degree or manslaughter. When looking at this case and deciding whether or not it can be classified as first-degree murder, meaning deliberate and planned, they needed to look deeper at Blake and Victoria's actions leading up to February 13, 2014. Luckily, while Blake was being held at the Central Nova Scotia Correctional Facility, he decided to keep a very detailed journal. Initially, Blake attempted to have these journal-style letters kept out of evidence, citing they were meant for his legal team and therefore fell under attorney-client privilege. In fact, in 2015, a separate hearing was held specifically to figure out whether these letters could be considered admissible. And a ton of very interesting information came out of this hearing, so let's dive into that. The court document starts out by describing Blake Leggett as a 26-year-old male whose education ended in grade 9. He had never been in prison prior to this and was therefore an incredibly inexperienced inmate. 
It also points out that Blake had a fascination with the Hells Angels, a biker gang that started in California and has since become an international crime organization. When Blake initially arrived at the Central Nova Scotia Correctional Facility, he struggled. This struggle led to a relationship forming between Blake and 47-year-old Darcy Corey, who was a much more seasoned inmate. Darcy told Blake he had some ties to the Hells Angels, and while they were sharing a cell, Darcy tried to act like a mentor to Blake, but it turns out this was not out of pure kindness. Darcy was working on a book about his time behind bars and wanted Blake to spill the beans about his life and his crimes for a chapter in the book. On April 8, 2014, the guards at the prison were on the lookout for a makeshift weapon or a shank. Specifically, it was made out of a broken mop handle. While searching, they stumbled upon 35 pages of writings in the cell where Blake and Darcy were housed. These writings include what seems like a full confession from Blake about his role in Loretta's murder. Another part outlines his plan to blame Victoria for the crime. Blake later claimed in court that he wrote these for a lawyer and not for Darcy's book. However, unbeknownst to Blake, Darcy had sold him out when speaking to law enforcement. He said that these letters were indeed for his book and were never intended for Blake's legal team. The defense contends that the writings taken from Leggett's cell on April 8, 2015 were seized improperly, infringing on his right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, as outlined in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Additionally, they argue that the seizure of these writings violates Leggett's charter rights concerning life, liberty, and security of the person, as well as his right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. The defense asserted that due to these alleged violations, the seized writings should be excluded from evidence. The defense also argued that the seized writings were protected by attorney-client privilege and as such were inadmissible. However, the Crown argues that the seized writings were a part of a book deal that he had made with Darcy, and they were in fact never intended for a lawyer, therefore there is no privilege. Additionally, the seizure of the writings was lawfully conducted, and they argued that there is a reduced expectation of privacy in a prison setting. One of the correctional officers who conducted the search of the cell was called to testify, and here's the evidence that she gave. And now this is a quote. During the course of searching the shelving units, I came across a cylindrical object described as two brown toilet paper rolls stuck together with a white label on the exterior. Inside of the tube were 35 pages of writings. There was a white label on the outside that said, To Darcy Corey Personal and Confidential. Now it's important to point out here that even if something in an inmate's possession is labeled personal and confidential, the corrections officers have every right to inspect it. The following is testimony from a different corrections officer who took the stand in this case. He said, quote, he is allowed to read personal letters, not to a lawyer, even during a routine search. All mail coming into the institution from non-lawyers is read even if labeled private, personal, and confidential. All incoming mail is searched even if marked legal to prevent the smuggling of contraband, which includes anything not permitted in the institution, such as weapons, tobacco, and drugs. For institutional safety, guards are allowed to open packages from law firms and skim the material and hand it to the inmate. When it was Blake's turn to testify, 
He said that the purpose of the notes was to provide his future lawyer with information about himself and the details of the murder of Loretta Saunders. He confirmed that he wrote personal and confidential to show that the writings were for his and his lawyer's eyes only. When asked why these writings were addressed to Darcy, he explained that ever since he was a child, he wrote his journal entries to someone of significance to him. For example, when he was a child, he kept a diary and he would write to Harry Potter. I think this is a good time to go ahead and get into some of these letters that Blake penned as they were eventually allowed into trial as evidence and they're pretty damning in our opinion. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way. So you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And we are back. So the first letter we're going to read that Blake wrote is dated April 8th, 2014. To Darcy Corey, on the 23rd of February, five days after my arrest, I arrived at the correctional facility in Dartmouth. With everything that has happened up to this point, i.e. involvement with Victoria's uncle, who was a member of the Hells Angels, knowing of three other people who have died because they were a threat to Victoria, and witnessing Victoria murder Loretta and being threatened by Victoria on multiple occasions that she could have me shot, I feared now more than ever that this could happen. This being the reason I put Loretta's body in the hockey bag and packed up a few of our things and took Loretta's car to leave the province on the way, dumping her body on the side of the highway. I feared that if I called the cops and had her, meaning Victoria, arrested, She would surely send her uncle after me, so I figured the best chance I had was to keep her safe and out of jail for as long as possible, knowing in the meantime that we would get caught and sooner or later go to jail. I took that time, the drive to Harrow, to come to terms with the fact that I would have to make the decision to take the rap for Victoria and spend the rest of my life behind bars. I thought it would have been the smartest thing to do, and that I would be respected by her uncle enough that he would spare my life since I was doing the honorable thing. 
After two or three days, I received a letter from Darcy Corey, who had noticed I was having some difficulties with a particular inmate, and he seemed to notice I was so sidetracked and stressed to be able to comprehend how to fit in and defend myself, he asked me to send in a request form to move into his cell with him. He stated that he would do the same and that it was best for me to do so. I was wary at first, but my gut urged me to trust this person. So after I returned from my second court date, it had been approved by the captain and I moved in with Darcy. From the very beginning, Darcy has done his best to teach me about what it is like being in prison, the ins and outs, pretty much how to survive, because he knew of my case from the news and newspaper, and he knew that I would be going into the federal system, and the knowledge he had of being in prison for 14 years altogether would be very useful to me. Time passed, and he came to tell me he was writing a book of his life, the people he met, and his experiences in the system, and asked if I would like to add to it. I agreed and decided to write. I wrote points of my life history to help him get to know me better. I also wrote the happenings of what went on on the day of February 13th, the day Loretta died. I wrote my fake confession. Of course, Darcy read it all, and when he came across the parts which I spoke of the Hell's Angels, he asked me about it. So I broke down and told him everything. He ended up telling me how he has been an affiliate of the organization going on 30 years now. He explained how certain aspects of how her uncle portrayed himself were not common characteristics of how people in the organization act. We both came to the conclusion that for two years, Victoria has been using the uncle, who is a powerful member of HA, as a ploy to control me. Right down to the part of telling me that my father has an $80,000 hit out on him because he's a rat. And she convinced me that she had three people murdered because she had asked for them to be killed. As I said, his 30 years affiliation has given him the knowledge to say he knows without a doubt in his mind that Victoria is lying. He stated to me, you have nothing to fear and you most definitely should not be throwing your life away to protect her. Instead, write the truth. Blake wrote a detailed confession in regards to Loretta's murder, not once, but twice. Here's the one he wrote first. February 13th, 2014, M-Day, which we assume means murder day. Loretta Saunders came to the apartment at 41 Cowie Hill Road, Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m., I believe, asking for the rent money, which Victoria Hennebury stated to her we would have days before that in a message. Loretta Saunders enters the apartment and claims that she is there for the rent. Victoria stated she lost her bank card and her ID. Victoria proceeds to the bedroom to make a phone call to the bank to see about getting a new bank card to be able to get the money out of her account, which is difficult to do, almost impossible without ID. At this point, I'm talking with Loretta about nothing but chit-chat and things. Loretta claims that she needs some dishes because Yalchin is making dinner and then proceeds to collect dishes. She's getting annoyed, claims, is the rent even available to Victoria? I respond, yes. Loretta sits on the couch, messaging on her phone. I walk into the room to speak to Victoria. I say, should I do it? Victoria says, you don't have the balls. That made me angry, and I said, really? Okay. I walk out into the living room where Loretta is sitting on the couch. I came up behind her all in one motion and grabbed her by the throat and proceeded to choke her. She kicked off the couch and we ended up in the dining room. 
while I constantly had her by the throat. For some reason, it wasn't working. In my mind, once I started, I couldn't stop. I asked Victoria for assistance, first with a plastic bag. Loretta put up a fight and tore through three different bags. Finally, I hit her head twice on the floor to knock her out, which worked. I proceeded to wrap her head in plastic wrap to make sure that she was actually dead. After she was officially passed away, I proceeded to place her in a hockey bag, cleaned up her ID, and gave Victoria her phone. I proceeded to get the car ready, taking the tires out, and then placing them in the front of the car and cleaning out the garbage. I carried her down the hallway into the elevator to the main floor. I went outside, placed her on the sidewalk, and proceeded to get the car ready to bring the body. Dead weight is heavy. I parked the car and proceeded to bring our stuff that Victoria and I had packed for the car. Last but not least, Victoria and our cat and I got in the car and left. So the second written confession is dated March 4th, 2014 and is as follows. On February 13th, 2014, Victoria and I were arguing because she did not want to be in Nova Scotia anymore. She never seemed to be satisfied. I was just finally sick of moving around so much and just wanted to make it work. She was so hard to be with, always wanting what she wanted and not what was needed. I was getting sick of it and the anger I was trying my whole life previously to keep out of my life was coming out and she knew how to push my buttons. She had thought out the idea days before killing Loretta. I never thought I would be capable of such an action. Never say never with three exclamation marks. Loretta Saunders walks into the apartment, obviously in our minds, wanting the rent money we owe her and she was entitled to $430. Victoria told her that she lost her bank card and ID and that would make it difficult to get out the money. Loretta even offered to drive her to the bank. While Victoria is on the phone in the bedroom, I am pacing around trying to figure in my head if I really want to do what Victoria wishes I would. Loretta's on the couch texting, and from what I could tell, getting frustrated, especially since we portrayed ourselves to be good, honest people. Loretta, seeming frustrated, remembers she was meant to get some dishes for dinner Yalchin was planning on preparing. So she continues to do so. As she does this, I decide to go see what Victoria's doing. She is literally on the phone talking to the bank about getting into her account without a bank card or ID, as if she's believing her lie. I asked Victoria, should I do it? She says, I don't know, and continues on the phone. I pause and think, I don't want to do this, but what do I do? So I decide to go and check and see what Loretta's doing. She's on the couch, more frustrated, smoking and texting. She exclaims, do you even have the money or what's the deal? I said, yes. I walked back to Victoria, who's still in the room, on the phone with the bank. I asked her again, should I do it? She says, you don't have the balls. This angered me beyond what I had left after everything we had been through. And like I said, she knew how to push my buttons. He then goes into a description of how he kills Loretta. And we've already kind of gone through that. And it's more of the same. So I will skip to uh, him saying that, how can I feel bad during this act? I was confused. I asked Victoria for help as if it would make me feel better. I told her to get the plastic wrap. Loretta was already knocked out, which made the task of wrapping her head in plastic easy. Satisfied that she would cause no more trouble, I was able to stand and breathe and look and allow what I did to sink in. I remember thinking I must be crazy because I felt relieved. 
stress-free. All my anger from my childhood and the last two years with Victoria all disappeared. I felt happy. Then action needed to take place. First, I cleaned up the mess of the kicked-over coffee table. Luckily, I had cigarettes to calm my nerves, but believe me, all I wanted was a joint. I couldn't wait to get some weed. He then details about how they've packed up their clothes and the cat, and they packed the car. And then he says, At this point, I started to get nervous because there was no way to load the car without being seen on camera, but I proceeded anyway. Packing the vehicle was fast. Before we left, Victoria had a worried look on her face. She said to me, I'm scared of you now. What if you do the same to me? I responded, trust me, I love you. You are the reason I'm doing this for our future. If I was to do it to you, I would have already. I could tell she was hesitant, but she kissed me anyway. Even that kiss. I knew it was the end of our relationship, and it would never be the same. I felt it. Blake, in another journal entry, recalls what was going on in him and Victoria's lives the day before the murder occurred. In this journal entry, he writes... February 12, 2014, Victoria and I are having trouble making ends meet. Her student loan came in, and per usual, we blew through it in a day. Well, most of it. I was having trouble getting work, and all she wanted to do was spend, spend, with no thought of paying our bills. Didn't even want to get groceries. Only what she wanted. Over the last two years, I've come to just give her what she wants to save argument. That's when she said the words, why don't we just kill her and leave? I don't want to be here anymore. It sucks. I don't want to be here. My nerves were shot from the stress of arguing so much constantly for the last two years. I want and would do anything for her. I would take a bullet for her. Never thought that I would kill for her, though. All of my life, all I've wanted was to have one love, and I always said I would not give up if I found it. And I thought I truly did. Till this day, I do not know why I was so blinded. Now, the following two letters were perhaps the smoking gun to answer the question of who out of Blake and Victoria were truly responsible for the physical murder of Loretta Saunders. The first is from March 18th, 2014. This, of course, is written by Blake. Quote, Darcy says this is going to start getting serious. My lawyer has already gotten a death threat to drop the case. But I am focusing on what I want and looking out for myself, since that's what she's doing. I don't care if she isn't the one who actually killed Loretta. It's what I will hopefully make everyone else believe. That is how I will make her pay for the last three years. Then in the second letter, which is dated March 22nd, 2014, he says, Basically, I am growing impatient. I am angry at myself for killing Loretta. And the fact that I am going to be blaming Victoria for it, so I don't do life in prison, but Darcy says she deserves it. I'm also fighting with whether I can actually trust Darcy or not, or am I just being played? Once again, being lied to again for someone else's gain. I want to trust him, but for the moment, I do trust him. And that's followed by like a dozen question marks. When Blake refers to someone else's gain, we believe he is referring to the financial gain that Darcy Corey would stand to receive from the sale of the book that he was allegedly writing. In another entry dated March 11, 2014, labeled My Defense, Blake wrote the following. Dear Darcy, I write this to you now because I feel that people should know the truth about the happenings of February 13th, the day Loretta Saunders passed away. 
It bothers me to recall this day, for this was an innocent woman with a promising future and recently had found out she was to have child. It saddens me to know that within minutes, the woman that I have spent two years loving and caring about, even through all of her controlling ways, and yes, it ashames me as a man to say that I let a woman control my life for two years, but that is no one's fault but my own, and to this day, I am still trying to figure out why. She controlled what I ate, how I dressed, who I talked to, pretty much everything, every aspect of my life, right down to the days I was allowed to shave. I mean everything. This is the woman who has taken an innocent person's life, and the following is the truth of what happened that day. I awoke that day with the daunting thought of Victoria's words she had stated days before in a drunken, raging fit, one of many that I have endured. Although this time, I filmed it on my phone, simply to show her what she acted like in an attempt to steer her from her drinking and treating me like a piece of shit, trying to cut herself, screaming bloody murder for no reason, for I have never laid a hand on her, and punching herself in the stomach saying, I hope I'm not pregnant, I hope I'm not pregnant, for we were trying. The previous year, she had a miscarriage. She was saying everything in her power to hurt me. For some reason, she looked at me and stated, you can't even admit you want to kill Loretta. I say to her each time she says this, what are you talking about? For I truly had no idea what she was talking about. Just Vicky talking shit in another drunk fit of hers. I now know those words were really thoughts she was having and something that she was planning and knowing I was videotaping her decided to incriminate me to cover her own ass. If only I would have realized this sooner, Loretta Saunders may still be alive. We do have a recording of that video that he recorded of Victoria, so we're going to play that for you now. Are you hungry? Stop it! Are you hungry? Wait for me. Are you hungry? You can't even say that you really want to kill Loretta. Really? You said that you want to kill her earlier. When did I say that? Don't lie about who I want to kill. And maybe you should stop lying. Who do you want to kill then? You're the one who says, you, oh, I want to you kill just, Loretta. You, you, you just said, you're okay. So the video starts out with Victoria spitting on Blake, and then Blake asks, are you hungry? To which Victoria replies, stop it. Blake asks her again if she's hungry, and Victoria crosses her arms and says, get the fuck away from me, while sort of uh, sheepishly laughing. And then she says, you can't even say that you really want to kill Loretta. Blake says, really? And Victoria continues, you said that you wanted to kill her earlier. Blake replies, when did I say that? Victoria says, I don't lie about who I want to kill, and maybe you should stop lying. Blake asks, who do you want to kill then? Victoria says, you are the one who says, oh, I'm going to kill Loretta. I can't wait till she comes back here. And Blake speaks over her on that last line, and then it cuts off. Back to the writings, which were allegedly for his lawyer, Blake goes beyond simply admitting to the murder of Loretta Saunders. He also suggests that he took pleasure in it and has intentions of committing further acts of violence. Such content doesn't really align with what one would share with their lawyer. Instead, it resembles material that might be found in a biography or autobiography, possibly included for dramatic effect or to be salacious. And here's a quote. As it stands, the only family that I have is the organization of the Hells Angels, or at least that's what her uncle told me, that I'm considered family, if that still stands. If it doesn't, then I'm alone in this world and have the option to start a new life and control it as I see fit. My old family and friends are dead to me, and they will never hear from me again. In the end, I murdered a woman, and even now as it did that day, it doesn't even bother me. I think I wanted to do it, 
as much as Victoria wanted me to. If it wouldn't have been Loretta Saunders, it would have been someone else, and she probably won't be the last. I struck a nerve that afternoon, a thirst. It will never be a woman, that I can promise. It will be someone who deserves it. Blake also made the intention of these journals very obvious when he wrote lines like this, quote, I want to get this book deal thing going. Otherwise, I'm just writing this all down for nothing. And then he says, I'll be out in a few years with at least one book, maybe two. This incident slash murder is now worldwide news, and the natives are eating it up. They are trying to get as much money as possible, and I want some of it. And then he follows that with several dollar signs. And then the last thing he writes about the book deal is, I can't wait to get the book deal on the go, and hopefully it will be as profitable as Darcy says. So this case was slated to go to a jury trial in April of 2015, but to everyone's shock, the pair entered guilty pleas. Blake pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, while Victoria pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. Each signed an agreed-upon statement of facts, which differ only slightly from each other, and both are available to read online if you search agreed-upon statement of facts, Blake Leggett and Victoria Henneberry, but we will read Victoria's now. I'm not going to read all of it because a lot of it just repeats information that we have already gone over. Um, so it's like essentially like the timeline of events, how, how she was murdered. Um, and then the new information is essentially that Victoria and Blake left the apartment to go to the computer store, the source, to get some cash. And while doing that, they had actually left Loretta's body in the apartment. They then returned to the apartment Mr. Leggett carried Ms. Saunders into the hockey bag, into the elevator, and out the door, placing Loretta in the trunk of her car. Victoria and Blake packed some belongings into the car and left Halifax, stopping along the way to purchase food and other supplies, and these purchases were made with Loretta's bank card. During their time in the car, it was revealed that Ms. Henneberry, Victoria, was using Loretta's phone and pretending to be her while texting Yalchin, Loretta's boyfriend. And this is when she was saying things like, I'm so stressed, I needed to get away, and I can't remember my mother's maiden name. So one could assume that this was them trying to get into her online banking while also trying to make it seem like Loretta was still alive. When Blake and Victoria reached Salisbury, New Brunswick, they stopped on the side of the highway and left Loretta's body still in the hockey bag in a treed area in the median, and it was snowing at the time. And that was signed on the 22nd of April, 2015. So after the courtroom adjourned, Blake's lawyer told the media that his client had been thinking about pleading guilty for a long time and that the matter had been weighing heavily on him since the day of the murder. Here's a quote from his lawyer from a CBC article dated April 22nd, 2015. I'm sure he's feeling very relieved in one way that he's publicly accepted responsibility, but he's very concerned as well. He's very remorseful. It was his idea to plead guilty. He did not want to have the Saunders family go through the very grueling process of a public trial with all of that evidence coming out over the next four weeks. He didn't assess his guilty plea because he thought that the case against him was strong. He entered a guilty plea because of his own sense that this was the right thing to do. Mr. Leggett indicated very early on in the process that he wanted to accept responsibility, and that led to a snowball effect where Ms. Henneberry then decided to accept responsibility and enter a plea to second-degree murder. So you can take that for what it is and believe what you want when you've heard what Blake had to write in his own words. 
The sentencing hearing for Victoria Hanabury and Blake Leggett was held on April 29, 2015. It opened with the judge stating, I am advised that the victim, Miss Saunders, was born August 25, 1987, and was 26 years of age when she was killed. She was an Aboriginal woman whose family resides in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador. The judge goes on to say, Loretta Saunders had a bright and hopeful future ahead of her at the time of her murder. She was in the early stages of pregnancy. She was in her fourth year of her undergraduate honors in criminology at St. Mary's University. Incredibly, considering the circumstances of this case, she had done a thesis proposal on missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. She had some courses to complete, but was hoping to graduate in May of 2014. She had plans for further higher education, and at the time of her murder was considering a number of programs, including a master's degree or law school. She was an important member of Canadian society whose death has impacted many. All those who knew Loretta Saunders describe her as a caring and wonderful person who was determined to make the best of her life and to help those around her. Her family was shattered by the actions of Mr. Leggett and Miss Hennebury on February 13, 2014. On that day, Mr. Leggett and Miss Hennebury introduced a foul poison into their lives that destroyed their innocence, their sense of security, their trust in others, and have left them crushed, brokenhearted, and empty. They cannot fathom how a young, bright life was snuffed out so grotesquely. The judge doesn't go into any further details of Loretta's murder as to avoid further victimizing her family, friends, and loved ones, and instead moves straight to Blake Leggett. He states, We have a small window into Blake Leggett's perspective from his own writings. I am referring to the writings that were seized from his prison cell and those given to his cellmate, all written as drafts for a book. I ruled those writings admissible in Mr. Leggett's trial. In those writings, Mr. Leggett not only describes how he killed Miss Saunders, but infers that he enjoyed killing her and has plans to kill again. This is either true, and if so, is disturbing at the highest level, or instead is something that Mr. Leggett wrote either for dramatic effect, to increase his own misguided sense of importance, or in an effort to try to boost sales of a book that he and his cellmate were planning on writing. Possibly those comments were written for some other reason that I can't fathom. He then goes into the details of Blake's life, which Blake himself provided as mitigating factors. These details included reports of physical, sexual, and mental abuse at the hands of various trusted adults during his childhood. It's also revealed that since being incarcerated, Blake has taken courses designed for self-improvement, including one-on-one anger management counseling services. The judge finishes by stating, Mr. Leggett took the highly unusual step of entering a guilty plea to first-degree murder. He saved Loretta Saunders' family and friends the agony of hearing testimony in this case. He took responsibility. He has apologized to the family in court today. Of course, Mr. Leggett created the endless and daily agony Loretta Saunders' friends and family must suffer because of her loss and because of the nature of her death. It was then time for the judge to move on to Victoria Hanabury, whom the judge also credited for entering a guilty plea, stating, Similarly, Miss Hanabury has entered a guilty plea to murder. She also saved Miss Saunders' family and friends the agony of hearing testimony in this case. She also apologized today. Of course, 
She also created the endless and daily agony Miss Saunders' friends and family must suffer because of the loss of Loretta Saunders and because of the nature of her death. The judge was also provided with detail about Victoria's background that were provided by herself as well as her legal counsel. I am advised that Ms. Henneberry was born September 15, 1985 in Halifax, but raised mainly in Ontario. Her biological mother was a substance abuser and addict. She was criminally active and relinquished Ms. Henneberry's care at a very early age. Ms. Henneberry describes a tumultuous childhood and a history of behavioral problems starting prior to adolescence and persisting through adolescence, including lying, truancy, cheating, and stealing. She further describes significant behavioral issues in school resulting in suspensions. Ms. Henneberry was eventually placed in a variety of group homes and became involved in substance abuse. She describes a history of having been sexually abused. There also appears to be a history of substance abuse on her part as an adult tempered only by lack of finances. Ms. Henneberry's adult life reflects an unsettled lifestyle with employment, residential, and relationship instability. By her own self-reporting, she has lived a parasitic existence with a history of manipulation of others. Duplicity, dishonesty, and a lack of responsibility seem to be integral to her interaction with people. According to material provided to me by her counsel, Ms. Henneberry may have a borderline personality disorder as well as an antisocial personality disorder. It then came time for the judge to make a decision on sentencing both Victoria and Blake. And here's what he had to say. Murder is the most serious crime in Canada, and the actions of Mr. Leggett and Ms. Henneberry have had a devastating impact on many lives, including Loretta Saunders' family, friends, and various communities. Mr. Leggett confessed and pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, taking responsibility for physically killing Ms. Saunders. Ms. Henneberry, as per the agreed statement of facts, is considered a party to murder. While not involved in the planning and deliberation, she knew about Mr. Leggett's intent and played a role in the cover-up. She has entered a guilty plea for second-degree murder, and a significant mitigating factor here is her cooperation. Considering the strengths and weaknesses of the case, as well as Ms. Henneberry's personal circumstances, experienced counsel on both sides recommend a life sentence with no parole eligibility for 10 years. This aligns with sentencing norms for such crimes and is deemed appropriate. The court accepts this joint recommendation, emphasizing the element of denunciation and general deterrence in the imposed sentence. Now, in regards to Blake Leggett's sentence, he received life in prison with a parole eligibility set at 25 years, starting from his arrest on February 18, 2014. In addition, a 10-year DNA order and a weapons prohibition order, as suggested by the lawyers, was put on both Blake and Victoria. Blake and Victoria could be looking at a lifetime behind bars. The parole board will decide if they ever get parole, and even then, it'll only happen if they meet all the conditions to ensure they won't pose a threat to society. Unfortunately, the story did not end there. Victoria attempted to appeal while representing herself in court. She alleged that her guilty plea was null and void due to mental illness and the fact that she was innocent. During the appeals process, Victoria made two arguments. First, that she wasn't in her right mindset when she made her guilty plea because she was distraught, stressed, and panicked. And secondly, she states that she is not guilty of second-degree murder. 
Victoria argued that she actually didn't intend to admit guilt, and she didn't have enough time to fully consider her options. She says that if she had been granted an adjournment, she would have had more time to make proper decisions, and not one based on how she was feeling at the time. She also argued that she suffers from anxiety and panic symptoms, which caused her to act differently and perhaps accidentally plead guilty. Victoria continues by entering evidence from an emergency room visit from 2012, the year before the murder. This is when she was prescribed clonazepam for anxiety symptoms. Now, clonazepam is a drug that is only supposed to be used short-term for treating panic attacks, and it's not meant for long-term use. Victoria also claims that there's only circumstantial evidence against her, which technically, I guess, is true. Blake had a fingerprint lifted off of the cling wrap that was found wrapped around Loretta's head, whereas as far as we could see in the court documents, there wasn't any direct physical evidence tying Victoria directly to the murder, but obviously the circumstantial evidence against her in this case is incredibly strong. The judge continued through the record and pointed out that the trial proceedings don't show any evidence supporting the idea that her plea was anything other than voluntary, clear, and well-informed. After Victoria entered her guilty plea to the lesser charge of second-degree murder, and after the victim impact statements were read in court, here's what Victoria had to say in court. I'm so sorry, and feel incredibly terrible for the pain and loss that I caused you. For 14 months, I've lived with the guilt of my actions, and it's been eating me alive every day since. As much as I wish that I had left the apartment, ran as fast as I could, and told someone I didn't. It's sad to know that there was a point in my life where I was involved in the death of somebody. I know there's nothing I could say to ease your pain, but I'm truly sorry. Wrong choices were made, and I've accepted and took blame for my part in this tragedy. I can only hope to one day receive your forgiveness. After Victoria made this statement, the judge called a recess until the afternoon. They then went through Victoria's fresh evidence, which is essentially her claiming that she had a mental disorder that impacted her ability to plead guilty In her own submissions to the judge, her claimed mental disorder varies. She says at the time of her plea, she was having a panic attack, and this was due to the fact that she was no longer able to access clonazepam or any other medications and was unable to deal with her anxiety issues. So Victoria states, and this is obviously through her lawyer, On the day of April 22nd, 2015, I pled guilty to the lesser offense of second-degree murder during which I hadn't intended to as I was experiencing mental health issues which prevented me from fully comprehending what I was doing. I wasn't aware that I could have addressed the courts at any time before my sentencing to recant my former plea. When asked in court, I froze, unable to form the words that I wanted to relay, which was, no, I don't want to plead guilty. I have no recollection of accepting the plea bargain, and when I received a copy of the agreed statement of facts, I didn't recognize the signature above my name. So Crown did their due diligence here and brought in a forensic psychologist to examine Victoria, and here were his findings. Psychological testing was informative as her responses to all four specialized and well-established forensic psychological tests used in this evaluation showed robust and extreme attempts to present her mental health status as exceptionally disordered, dysfunctional, and impaired. Essentially, he found that Victoria was playing up her symptoms and malingering. In another piece of submitted evidence through Victoria, she claims that she was taking clonazepam to treat her anxiety right up until her incarceration in February of 2014. But in self-reporting between her and another psychiatrist, 
she contradicts her own claims. Quote, Ms. Henneberry reported that she had been using as much as 100 milligrams of clonazepam a day in 2013, but weaned herself off of this drug because she and her co-accused were trying to conceive a child. Victoria also made the following claims. During my incarceration at Central Nova Scotia Correctional Facility, I received no treatment or medication, even though I did request to be put back on my anti-anxiety medication. During my incarceration, my symptoms have only intensified and worsened as a result of not being properly medicated. But this claim was found to be total bullshit as well. The forensic psychologist had access to her medical records, which clearly showed that Victoria was seen in March, April, and May of 2014 to receive help for sleep and anxiety. And she was also offered anti-anxiety medications by the doctor and she refused them. After the documents were reviewed, it became evident that Victoria's claim of a mental disorder affecting her guilty plea didn't hold any water. The judge acknowledged the fact that facing a murder trial is stressful, but there was no credible evidence suggesting a lack of cognitive capacity. Victoria also impeded access to crucial witnesses during this appeals process, including her lawyer and a female forensic psychiatrist that she herself had requested. On April 22, 2015, Victoria had the choice of either pleading guilty to second-degree murder or heading to a jury trial. Assisted by her legal counsel, Victoria made a deliberate, voluntary, and considered decision. She had the option to try the circumstantial evidence against her at trial, but she knew that the legal landscape was unfavorable. The forensic psychiatrist's report was unhelpful to her, and Blake's admission to a planned and deliberate murder made him available to be a compelling witness against Victoria. After consideration, the judge accepted and admitted the new evidence that she brought into the record, but rejected Victoria's request to withdraw her guilty plea and threw out her appeal. When Victoria lost her bid to withdraw her guilty plea, the courtroom erupted in cheers and a few profanities were tossed Victoria's way. The family, friends, and loved ones of Loretta Saunders were relieved, but there was an undercurrent of prolonged pain having been dragged back into the court to have to relive the details of their loved one's murder. Loretta's mom, Miriam, said the following to a journalist from the Halifax Examiner. I know that the justice system to us is not right, but I felt that today the justice system did us a very good job, and I'm very pleased. I know there's people out there who have had no justice. We're one of the fortunate ones, and I thank God for that. Now, after Victoria lost her appeal in 2017, she continued to be a thorn in the family's side. In 2020, Victoria was granted eight temporary escorted leaves from prison. Victoria began claiming that she was of American Cherokee heritage while incarcerated, despite the fact that the parole board noted that she was not raised in the culture and had no knowledge of her history. In February of 2020, Victoria got a five-hour day pass to attend a session with the Healing of the Seven Generations, which is an Ontario-based organization that offers programs for Indigenous people. This caused further public outcry, and as such, Victoria lost community support and was banned from attending any further sessions with that organization for the remainder of her time in prison. In general, the parole board mentioned that Henneberry's conduct in prison has consistently improved. However, the board also pointed out that Henneberry doesn't agree with her life sentence. Here's a quote from a CBC article from November of 2020 in regards to what Victoria's caseworkers had to say about her. 
Your case management team reports you continue to demonstrate an unrealistic sense of entitlement at times, as you state that you should not be serving a life sentence and should not be incarcerated as there is nothing left for you to learn in prison and you should be released at your earliest eligibility date. The board mentioned that Henneberry intended to apply for day parole in February of 2021. Thankfully, the board rejected her again. The board also noted that Victoria expressed she was remorseful, but showed no emotion while doing so. Initially, Victoria began her incarceration in Truro, Nova Scotia, but after an altercation with another inmate, she was moved to another facility, this time in Ontario. She was initially classified as high security, but has since worked her way down to minimum security treatment. The board finished by saying, It is the board's opinion that you will present an undue risk to society if released, Further, your release will not contribute to the protection of society by facilitating your reintegration into society as a law-abiding citizen. Unfortunately, in the aftermath of losing Loretta, Loretta Saunders' family suffered another loss. Delilah, Loretta's sister, who started using the name DM, as well as they-them pronouns, passed away in September of 2021. DM had a very rough time in the years after Loretta was murdered. DM struggled with depression, as well as substance misuse, specifically Suboxone, alcohol, opioids, and acetaminophen. In 2017, DM was hospitalized with severe abdominal pain and found out they had acute liver failure that had likely been brought on by acetaminophen use coupled with alcohol abuse. The doctors informed DM that they wouldn't be a good candidate for a liver transplant due to the alcohol use that had taken place in the months prior to the diagnosis. DM's family were devastated and outraged that their daughter would not receive the medical attention they needed due to a history of addiction. DM's aunt was quoted in the Ottawa Citizens saying, Delilah could have been saved, but she might die because she has a history of addictions. D.M. Saunders, age 29, passed away on September 7, 2021, and their mother, Miriam Saunders, asserts that the cause of death was accidental suffocation and other complications. Miriam explained that D.M. had been using alcohol as a means to alleviate the pain from the withdrawal from the Suboxone, and that D.M. was committed to achieving a drug-free life. DM tried for years to overcome their addiction and had discontinued Suboxone use a few weeks prior to their death. There were no traces of Suboxone found in their system at the time of their passing. A scholarship in Loretta Saunders' name was created, and this scholarship aims to support Indigenous women attending post-secondary school. The website says, This fund was established to honor Loretta's passion for justice for Indigenous peoples and her dedication to her university studies. It also contains an excerpt from Loretta's thesis that she was working on at the time of her murder. My story isn't unique. Thousands of girls are exposed to the exact same experiences that I couldn't even fathom wishing upon another human being. Yet, our very own government is responsible for orchestrating the events and developing the policies and practices that led to the marginalization of generations of my people. I now know that many of my past experiences are a part of the vicious cycle that has been passed down through generations. This can no longer be accepted by our women and girls. It is through this project that I aspire to educate and enlighten others to the devastating intergenerational impacts that colonization has created for us, 
as well as provide hope and inspiration that change is possible. If you'd like to apply to or donate to Loretta's Saunders Scholarship Fund, you can visit the website which we will be posting in the show notes of this episode. Victoria Henneberry is eligible for parole next year, 2024. We will be sure to post updates should she attempt to apply for parole. Blake Leggett, however, is not eligible for parole until 2039. That's all we have for this week's episode of True North True Crime. We will see you all again very soon with a brand new episode. But until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Stay safe.